The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. When people think of what they'll leave behind to their loved ones after they're gone, they often think of material possessions and money. But on this episode, we'll look at the other more important treasures we have to give. Values, hopes, advice, love, and wisdom. Our guest is Rabbi Steve Leader, the best-selling author of The Beauty of What Remains. His new book is called For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. Rabbi, we thank you so very much for joining us. Oh, it's my honor. Thank you. You have presided over more than a thousand funerals and sat with over a thousand families mourning the loss of a loved one. And I'm wondering what impact those experiences had in compelling you to write this book. Mm. Everything and nothing. And let me explain. (laughs) All right. Good way to answer it. Well, everything in the sense that in ministering to those more than a thousand families and walking the grief journey with them, I thought that I knew a lot about grief and loss and, and, and death and dying. And then my own father died after a 10 year journey through Alzheimer's. And I was not Steve leader, the rabbi through that experience. I was Steve leader, the son and Becoming Steve Leader, the son, helped me realize how wrong Steve Leader, the rabbi, was about some of my assumptions. And so that's why I say everything and nothing. Like everything because I felt that I knew a lot and nothing because there's a lot I didn't know and a lot I was wrong about. And so this book and the previous book are a kind of um, setting the record straight, almost, almost an apology for what Steve Leader the Son learned, Steve Leader the Rabbi did not. I know that one of the things you said that you learned when you were going through your father's possessions after, after losing him to Alzheimer's was that the purpose of life isn't to have, but to be. And I'm sure that you, you kind of felt that message from being with all those families, but how did it feel different when it was your own father? One of the saddest memories after my dad died was walking down into the basement of my parents' townhome and seeing virtually all of my father's possessions in a heap on the basement floor because no, nobody wanted any of it. Even the goodwill didn't want half of it. And it just reaffirmed for me how little the material expresses in terms of our love and our values for the people we care about. Um, you know, if you think about it, what, what are most people's final words to their loved ones? Their final words, the last thing our loved ones hear from us in most cases is in the form of a will 
a boilerplate legalese document written by someone who barely knows us. And it is entirely about who gets what and when and how much of our stuff, our money and our stuff. And we fool ourselves into believing that somehow the material expresses the emotional. And I often say to people, that's like handing your loved ones a picture of food. It's not real. It will not sustain them. It will not comfort them. It will not nurture them. What they really need, what they really want, what I really cherish from my dad are not, not material. Mm-hmm. They're the life lessons, the laughter, the time we spent together, the way I can still feel him on my shoulder telling me to go back in and turn off the lights because <laughs> you don't work for the electric company, do you? <laughs> right? Right? So those that's the true legacy that we bequeath to our loved ones. But unfortunately, most of us die without having written it down and, and passing it on to them. And, and so that was really a big part of my motivation for, for writing for you when I am gone. And by the way, when you create what I call an ethical will, when you answer these 12 questions, you are not only creating the most beautiful bequest for your loved ones when you're gone, but you are also creating what I would call a, a, an MRI of your internal life because this is all about your values. And then you get to ask yourself the most important question any human being can ask, which is, okay, this is what I say my truth is. This is what I say I believe. Am I living that way? Mm-hmm. Or am I mostly pretending? And it's an opportunity to realign yourself so that your lived values and your professed values are the same. The unhappiest people I know are people who say one thing and do another. What are the most important questions? You came up with with 12 essential questions to be used as a a basis for an ethical will that you would leave your loved ones. But first of all, how did you determine those 12 questions? (laughs) I'm curious. Yeah, my my editor asked me the same question. She said, you know, these questions in this order, they just open you up. They just unfold your story and your truth. And how did, how long did it take to come up with them? And I said to her, 35 years and 15 minutes. (laughs) Well, that's pretty precise. These are the questions I have been honing and perfecting over 35 years. When I sit with a family a day or two before the funeral of their loved one, to prepare them and to learn the story of their loved one's life. And that's really how I came up with those questions, because those questions are not about the facts of a person's life or our lives. They're about the truth of our lives. I I used to teach a course at the rabbinical seminary in Los Angeles called homiletics, which is just a fancy word for how to write sermons, wedding addresses, and eulogies. And when I got to the eulogy section, the first thing I would do is write on the board, an obituary is the facts, a eulogy is the truth. Mm. So, for example, I was born in 1960 in a suburb of Minneapolis. That's a, those are facts. Mm-hmm. But they don't tell you anything about me other than my age. Now, if you ask, what is my greatest regret? 
What do I believe it means to be a good person? Those kinds of questions. Now you're going to learn some truths about me and who I really am as a person. So this book is about discovering, articulating, revealing, unfolding the truth of our lives, not the facts. The facts, frankly, are boring. It's the truths that are interesting, and everyone's life is interesting. So these questions really came from all of those years, teasing these stories and these truths out of family members who deeply loved someone who has died. You write that telling the truth about our painful lapses in judgment bestows a healing legacy upon the people we love the most. And I thought it was so extremely powerful since that's definitely not something commonly done when you think about people who are on social media trying to make it seem like they've never made a mistake. They've never had a lapse in judgment. <laughs> right, so right. Why, why should we do that? Why should we actually be a little more vulnerable? First of all, it's the truth of who we are. It's the real truth of who we are. Otherwise, our lives are kabuki. Otherwise, we're wearing a mask our entire life. And I have found, people have said to me, you're very forthcoming and transparent and vulnerable for, for such a public person and for clergy in general. Why do you do that? The reason I do it is because I, first of all, don't want to have to hide the real me. And I also want to be a model for other people and, and make it permission granted to be authentically who you are and to tell the truth about your life experience. I think most people, when I ask them, let me ask you, we'll turn the microphone around for a second onto the two of you. Do you remember the, when the moment you realized that your parents were just people? Yes. Uh-oh. <laughs> My sister and I talk about that all the time. Really? Oh, we right. did. We have talked about that so many times where we realized, oh, wait, you guys aren't superhuman and you actually are people that have struggles. And it made us kind of worry about you guys in a way that we hadn't before. And I remember that. She remembers that. And it's, it's something we have talked about. How old? And <laughs> yeah. How she old? was... I think she was 14. She was in high school, just going into high school when she told me. So I would have been 12 at the time. And then it, huh. it I was like, huh, that's, that's kind of weird. I think it hit her and it, just at a, at, a, at a later age, I guess. And yeah, ultimately, I, I, did it draw you closer to your parents? Yeah, I would say so. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. rest my, I rest my case. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's, that's why so it's interesting. It, it opens the door. And it creates empathy rather than objectification. Mm-hmm. And empathy is, is the essential ingredient to real love. We thank you for being part of our Nobody Told Me family of listeners. You know, we always try to tell you about things that will help improve your life. And our sponsor, ZocDoc, is one of those things. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. They treat almost every condition under the sun. You know, it's frustrating to go to a doctor's appointment expecting to be able to fully explain your symptoms, condition, and worries, only to find that the doctor 
wants to hurry you out of their office. Instead of listening to you intently, the doctor is checking the clock. But on ZocDoc, you'll find quality doctors who focus on you, listen to you, and prioritize your care. I've used ZocDoc several times to find doctors, and I have never been disappointed. I love how ZocDoc lets you check a doctor's availability and book an appointment as soon as the same day if there's an opening. Thousands of doctors and medical professionals on ZocDoc are there to help you. ZocDoc helps you find the ones that specialize in the care you need and deliver the type of experience you want. When you're not feeling your best and just trying to hold it together, finding great care shouldn't take up your energy. And that's where ZocDoc comes in. Using their free app that millions of users rely on, you can find the right doctor that meets your needs and fits your schedule. Book an appointment with a few taps in their app and start feeling better faster with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com NTM and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z. D-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash N-T-M. ZocDoc dot com slash N-T-M. If you have a symptom that you'd really like to get checked out, don't put it off anymore. Just go to ZocDoc dot com slash N-T-M and download the ZocDoc app for free. What is the first essential question that you should ask yourself in writing this ethical will? Well, I put, them in an, I put them in order deliberately in the book. The first question is, what's your greatest regret? Now, why is that the first question? That was first my second all, question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So first of all, it requires real vulnerability and humility to open up in that way. And that's the headspace we need to be in for the following 11 questions. Now, the second reason is, what I discovered in my, in that chat, you know, which I reveal in that chapter is that what most people regret most is not something they did, but something they didn't do. So there are two kinds of regrets. There are regrets of commission, the things we do, but there's a much more profound kind of regret, which is the regret of omission, the time we didn't show up the time we didn't speak up, the path we didn't take. And our loved ones, and we can learn so much from that singular regret of omission. And it changes your life going forward. It makes you less fearful. It, it, it makes you more daring. It, it helps you lead with your heart. Instead of, on the one hand, on the other handing your way through life and, and essentially missing out on the best of life. So, you know, the next question is like, you know, when was a time you led with your heart? Why is that the second question? Because that, ask most people, when was, the, when was a time you led with your heart? You made a decision from your heart. And you will find that for most people, it led to the most beautiful thing in their lives. So then why don't they do it more? When I was, when I was reading yeah, about that, yeah. I was thinking, gosh, why don't we do this more? If this is what leads to our best decisions and we knew that at some point in our lives, often early in our lives, why don't we continue to do that? Well, there are a lot of reasons. Uh, sometimes risk is not rewarded. Sometimes we're raised, like I was raised in a family where I was taught at a very young age 
that anything could go wrong at any moment. There was always potential disaster lurking around every corner. You know, my father buried gold coins in the backyard under a tree in case we ever had to make a run for it, you know, or, or we ever had to buy bread. He would literally tell me that stuff when I was a little boy. Uh-huh. So a lot of us are raised with catastrophic thinking and, and, and a lot of us are raised, a lot of us are punished if, if we privilege the emotional over the intellectual. So there are, there are as many reasons for it as there are people, but we can absolutely deliberately overcome it. And I found, listen, I, I'll just, I won't tell you the whole story, but let me just say that um, I have twice in my life really privileged my heart. And the first time was when I asked my wife to marry me on our second date. And she did. And we just celebrated our 37th anniversary. Wow. And the, and the other was when I was interviewing for my first job and I walked onto the pulpit at Wilshire Boulevard Temple and I said, this is it. This is it. And I've been here 36 years. And you just knew it. Yeah. You should lead, lead with your heart. You know, lead with your heart. Two of the other questions you talk about, I, I love. One is, what was your biggest failure and what got you through your greatest challenge? Why mm-hmm. are those important questions to, to ask yourself and to share with your loved ones? Because sharing your failure humanizes you in the eyes of your loved ones. Just like that moment when your girls figured out you were just a person. It draws you, <laughs> it, it draws you closer. It doesn't pull you apart. And of course, we only really learn from failure. Success doesn't teach you very much, except to keep doing the same thing over and over. Failure is disruptive. Pain is disruptive. It forces us to change, ideally. And so that, that's a very important model to share. You know, um, So I, I think seeing failure as part of success is a really helpful way to frame the idea of failure. And, you know, then what got you through your most difficult time? If you really look at it, what you'll find is most people answer that question in one form or another by talking about the importance of reaching out. That, look, I can tell you from my work as a rabbi and my work as a writer, no one suffers pain better alone. No one. The the rabbis, the sages of the Talmud put it so beautifully. They said, the prisoner cannot free himself. That's a very powerful idea. The prisoner cannot free himself. We need to have the strength and the humility to reach out. And guess what you find when you reach out? very often you will find someone who will reach back and help lift you from your suffering. Will you be disappointed by some people? Of course, but you will be loved and supported by many more, but of course you have to reach out. And this is a particular issue for men who really don't have friends, essentially. One of the questions relating to that, it's about cutting people out of their lives. And I was wondering mm-hmm. if 
yeah, how, how people who have done that felt about that decision as they were nearing death, if maybe somebody in their life really was toxic, because you, you could think of it both ways. Like, should they yes. have maybe been more forgiving of the toxic person? Or maybe did they just unjustifiably kick someone out of their life because they were having a rough time? Well, usually it goes like this. I get a call that goes something like this. Steve, um, I've never had a good relationship with my mother. She's always made me feel lousy about myself. She's narcissistic. She's cold. She's withholding. She's crazy, whatever, whatever it is. And about 10 years ago, I made the decision to just really remove her from my life. And I'm a happier person because of it. I text her on her birthday and Mother's Day, but that's it. And I'm happier, but... I've just learned she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She's got three to six months. And I'm afraid I'm going to really feel so guilty when she dies. And I'm thinking about, you know, going back home and trying to make peace and live with this. And my answer to them is, you know, you might feel guilty, but probably what you're going to feel is relieved. And they look at me with a face like, huh, how does, how does the rabbi know such a terrible person? How, how does he know that that's how I think I'm going to feel? And the reason I know is because every one of us has this in our lives. Every, if, I, if I put a room, uh, sat 2,000 people in a room, and I said, how many of you have someone in your family who doesn't talk to someone else in your family? All 2,000 hands will go up. This is part of what it means to be human. We encounter people who are toxic for us, whether they intend to be or not. And our life is, is, and, and the embarrassment that comes with saying this is something I'm trying to break through for people. Our lives are better without them. That's the simple truth of it because they cannot be fixed. Some people are so toxic and so broken, they cannot be fixed. And at that point, you are the fool for maintaining that relationship that merely punishes you. And, and once I'll tell you the reason that's in the new book is because this was a tiny, the, the book before the beauty of what remains was a 55,000 word book. There were 50 words in it, maybe about this idea of removing toxic people from your life. And that you won't regret it when you're dying or when they're dying. You'll actually be okay with it. I thought, well, I'm going to mention this because it might help a few people. I was shocked by how many people reached out to me and said, thank you for saying that. Because I've, so much of society has this Pollyannish, phony view of family and friendship that somehow it's supposed to last a lifetime or that no matter what you should forgive and forget, et cetera. But it, we're, we're not really built that way. We know better. This is also part of leading with your head instead of your, I mean, leading with your heart instead of your head. We, none, of us, none of us have to put up with toxicity, nor should we. Along those lines, you urge people to ask themselves, one of the essential questions, what is a good person? Why is that a good, good question to explore? Because every one of us at some point in our lives have said to our children or our grandchildren, 
be good. Be a good person. All I care about is that you're a good person. That was good what you did, but we don't go on to define it. And how do you become it if you can't define it? Right? So let's not be um, equivocal about what it means to be a good person. And this goes back to this internal realignment. Okay, I'm going to say it's a, you're a good person if you uh, are honest and love your family. But okay, I sneak my grandchildren into the movies for the under 12 price when they're 14, and I have a fake handicap sticker and I park in the handicapped spaces. Really? That's, that's what you want to model when you say, be a good person, be honest, but you're not modeling it. You're not living it. So it's just talk and your kids know you're a phony. So let's articulate what it means to be a good person. And essentially, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to distill an entire chapter down into a sentence for you, but essentially, <laughs> right? Essentially, a good person who is a person who is capable of empathy for the other and of privileging the needs of another over their own. Another question is, how do you want to be remembered? What age do people most want to be remembered as? I, you know, it's a very interesting question. I, I know that most people, when I ask them, feel internally about 20 years younger than their chronological age. I'll ask an 80-year-old, do you feel 80? And the answer will be no. I say, how old do you feel? She'll say, mm, like maybe 60. That's been my experience. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's so much an age-related thing. Um, I think it's more about uh, uh, more of a kind of an act of essentialism in terms of how you want to be remembered. And, and most people say, you know, like if you think about uh, epitaphs in a cemetery, if you think about what's on most people's headstones, despite the fact that we're all unique individuals, we, re- we lead unique lives, almost everyone's headstone says exactly the same thing, right? Loving wife, mother, grandmother, friend, right? Loving husband, father, grandfather, friend. It, not your resume, not your gene size, you know, not, not where your grandchild went to college, not your zip code, not your net worth, none of it, none of it. That's not really how we want to be remembered despite the fact that we spend so much of our life working on that stuff that is literally nonsense. Because when, when you have to distill your life down to 15 characters per line and four lines total, which is what most cemeteries give you for a headstone, you are engaged in a very powerful act of essentialism. How do I really want to be remembered? And it always comes down to having been kind and loving to a tiny handful of people. And none of us have more than a tiny handful who really matter. And if you know that, then you can work backwards from that in your life in order to live up to that epitaph. Wow. And another one of your essential questions you urge people to ask themselves is what will your final blessing be? Yes. Yes. Because I always ask families when I gather them together to prepare for a funeral, I'll say, now, listen, let's imagine for a moment your mom was here listening to all of this, all these stories. And then you get up and leave the room 
And she comes out because she was hiding behind the couch and she sits down and looks at me and she says, Steve, I heard what all the kids had to say. It was beautiful. I don't dispute a single word of it, but this is what I want you to say to them tomorrow from me. In other words, if your mom could get up there at her own funeral and look out at you and say something, what would it be? Because again, this is such a powerful act of essentialism, of getting down to the core truths of your life. And of course, if you can articulate it, then my next question to you would be, well, don't wait for someone else to answer that question when you're dead. Tell them now. At the end of each show, we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what is it that nobody told you about how to live your life with the fewest regrets possible that you wish you'd known before even that first eulogy and you would like to pass on to our audience so they can avoid some of the hard lessons and don't have to do more than a thousand (laughs) eulogies to learn it. (laughs) It's a great, it's such a good question, like a letter to my younger self, right? Um, I would say what nobody told me is that no one is judging me as harshly as I am judging myself. I wish I had known that sooner and I would have had a lot less anxiety and, uh, and a lot more joy in my life. Rabbi, how can people connect with you on social media and the internet and, and learn more about your work? Um, thank you for asking. They can find all the books on Amazon. Uh, I I'm very engaged with Instagram and it's at Steve underscore leader, L E D E R. I also have a website, uh, steveleader.com. You can find me on Wilshire Boulevard temples website in Los Angeles. So I'm, I'm pretty easy to reach. You're, you're pushing out an open door with me. All <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, great. We thank you so much for joining us. This, is, this has really been, been fun and thought-provoking as well. I'm glad. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. I really do. Thank you. Again, our thanks to Rabbi Steve Leader, whose new book is called For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. And again, his website is steveleader.com. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. 